Hey everybody, and welcome to a special episode of United on Wheels. Uh, this time for Spinal Cord Injury Awareness Month, which is this September. Got a few days left, so we wanted to sneak this in before it ran out. Uh, for those of you who don't know, United on Wheels is United Spinal's relatively new podcast about the ins and outs of wheelchair life. And uh, what better time could there be than at the end of September, fall is in the air. Uh, everyone's talking, thinking about wheelchair life and spinal cord injuries. So uh, I'm really excited about today. Uh, as always, I'm Ian Ruder, the editor of New Mobility Magazine and your mostly fearless guide uh, to the wonderful world of all things on wheels. Uh, for today's topic, we decided to come up with something that came from our staff uh, actually here at United Spinal, and it's a little different than what we've done in the past, uh, but I think it's gonna be really fun, and I've got an exciting couple of guests who I think are gonna uh, bring a lot of life to it. So today's topic is common misperceptions about life with a spinal cord injury. Uh, in the past, previous episodes have been aimed mainly at wheelchair users uh, and wheelers, uh, but today we wanted to kind of get something out there for people who you know, maybe are in the community or interested in finding more out uh, about what life is like with a spinal cord injury. And talking with our my fellow staff members, it became clear that uh, there were a lot of things that they had learned over the years working with uh, all the people on staff here who have spinal cord injuries. And uh, the more we talked, the more it drove home something that seems pretty obvious. But then when it comes to spinal cord injury knowledge, there are some big holes in uh, public perception and knowledge. So I guess that shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, media representations are pretty uninformed often. And if you weren't born into a wheelchair or you know to some sort of disability, there's a good chance that you didn't know that much before uh, you got one either. I know that's true for myself and we could talk a little bit more about that later. So uh, before I waste any more time, I wanna introduce the awesome people I have here today to chat about this with me. First off, I'd like to introduce Brooke McCall. Uh, Brooke is United Spinal's manager for grassroots advocacy. Uh, when she's when she's not working doing that, she is a connoisseur of good food and music, and she always can be relied on with a savvy take on whatever the hot topic of the day is. So, hello, Brooke. Thanks for joining. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm also joined today by Jose Hernandez. Uh, Jose is a program specialist in United Spinal's famed Resource Center. He is my go-to guy whenever I have a question about how to get stuff done or where to find the info I need and always reliable for insight and uh, good humor. So, hey, Jose, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, Between the three of us, we have, I think, almost 50 years of experience rolling. So we should have more than enough insight to jam-pack this podcast and let's get started. So uh, to come up with the topics for today and what we wanted to talk about, actually sent out an email to all of the United Spinal staff uh, to come up with some of the misconceptions that they've learned they had, maybe didn't even realize they had uh, before they started working with everybody on staff who is in a wheelchair. And I also chatted with my colleagues today to get their ideas. So these are just a few of the ones we came up with. We're not going to address everything today, but hopefully knock down a few of those out there that are rampant and hopefully provide some uh, insight and uh, education. So the first one, and I think maybe the broadest and uh, most common misconception or misperception that's out there, uh, is that life in a wheelchair totally sucks. You guys, do you get that one a lot? Uh, um, I'll let you start this one off, Brooke. Sure. Um, I mean, I know that that perception is out there. Um, you know, we've just kind of been taught 
in the world, media, whatnot, that inherently we are somehow sick and flawed. And no, life in a wheelchair does not totally suck. Um, life in a wheelchair is a challenge and it's often difficult, um, can be terrible at times. Um, but day to day, my life does not suck. I mean, if anything, I, I really enjoy my life. I found like a new capacity um, really to appreciate life in a way that um, I didn't 16 years ago. I just, things had come pretty easily. And now I really appreciate the things I am able to do and the relationships I've built. So no, of course not. It doesn't suck. But yeah, people like to put that on me. Well, I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate, let's say. Um, at the beginning of the injury, you know, I guess it did totally suck because it's, it's such an abrupt change. You go from walking and being completely independent one day to having to rely on uh, people for a lot of things. And then gradually, as you got accustomed to your disability, uh, you made your life what it is. So um, I've been paralyzed for 23 years, and I could say right now that my life doesn't suck. I work, I drive, I live my life just like everyone else. So um, maybe because the beginning is so rough, that's why this misconception came about. Yeah, I think it's one of those interesting things, too. And, and over time, meeting people, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but I've run into a lot of people who are adamant and really do uh, say that they're thankful somewhat for being in a wheelchair, which is, I would not say that's true for me. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm happy with the life that I have, but people who say that their life is much better than they ever could have imagined before their injury, and they maybe discovered things about themselves or, um, you know, or have changed the way they do things or were on a path they didn't really like, and it served for, uh, you know, a big change. So it really runs the gamut, I think. And, like you guys said, uh, it can be really difficult, but I think on the most part, there's a lot of really great things and it's better than the alternative, I always say. Mm. Um, maybe another one kind of falling from that, uh, I think a lot of people think the hardest part of having a spinal cord injury is not walking. What would you guys say to that? I think that's the easiest part to deal with. Uh, you have all of these mobility aids, we have power chairs, we have manual wheelchairs, even if a person can semi-ambulate, you have walkers and stuff like that. So it, it's not so much the not, the non-ability of, the not being able to walk, it's more everything else around it that surrounds it that makes it difficult. I agree completely. Walking is the least of my worries. Um, it's really the challenge of just the fact that physically and in a lot of ways um, just society is not there and ready to ready for us on wheels so whether it's a physical barrier or just um, just a kind of a, a, a personal um, interaction barrier that's really the harder part is not being able to do things that we don't you don't need to walk to do I mean of course occasionally I look up on a mountain and I want to go there but um, life that's okay you know i can get past that 100 percent. walking is the least of my worries it's um all the hoops and all of the um there's a lot of bureaucracy and just time wasting and um a lot of things that make it far harder than just physically not walking and i think that's another thing people get pretty hung up on yeah sometimes dealing with i'm sorry just 
sometimes dealing with a broken elevator in a subway system, it's a lot harder to deal with than just not working. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say, following up, is there something or are there a couple things maybe that jump out at you as uh, that would you would answer as the hardest thing or um, like I think access, like you guys both pointed out, but when it comes to the day to day, are there other things that are really hard? Maybe people don't realize or aren't aware of. Um, I think it can just be, it can be, I don't know if lonely is the right word, although that is something that is um, a big commonality for people who have SCIs, even when we're surrounded by people and um, plenty of us have very active friend and family and, um, and love relationships, but that doesn't mean it can't be lonely being someone who, um, I just think we are often misunderstood, kind of like what we're talking about today as a whole. Um, it's hard not having someone else who really can empathize fully with you. So a lot of times you're asked answering questions that um, can be uncomfortable or facing barriers that people just don't get. And they, I don't know, there's kind of some kind of fog that happens. People just, they, it's overwhelming for them to even think about what our lives look like. But I think when you're in our actual shoes, there are some pretty easy solutions that we just need more understanding about. Yeah. And I absolutely, you know, it's the simple things that make things harder for us. Uh, if society would take us into consideration and make everything accessible, um, then no one would have to worry about work walking. You know, curb cuts everywhere would be accessible. Uh, elevators would be accessible. Even the taxi system, the taxis here in New York, uh, would be accessible. You could, you know, pull up and get to work and not worry about being late or dealing with a paratransit system that it's that makes your life difficult. So uh, walking is definitely the least of my worries. Right. Maybe one last follow-up to that one. Um, another misperception that I think people are like, if they think come to you and say, oh, you know, I wish, you know, I wish you could walk again, you know, more than anything. Uh, but if you could have, you know, one one wish or one thing, uh, they, people think that's what you would want. What what would you actually want if you could have one thing, other than a cure, obviously? Uh, the, <laughs> the one thing that I would want after 23 years of being paralyzed is the ability to control my bowel and bladder. Uh, that's one thing that has has uh, been. The more, one of the more difficult things to deal with after being paralyzed because, you know, you have to watch what you eat, you have to watch what you drink, um, and you just never know uh, what's going to happen. Yep, that'll be mine too. So I will be the wild card and um, say that, um, for like that one, of course, that would be wonderful and it'd be really high up on my list. But um, luckily I've been... Um, things have been easier in that in that aspect. Um, as a higher quad than you two gentlemen, um, for me, it would definitely be an autonomy. I have to have help. I'm a high quad, so I'm unable to move. Um, I'm the true quad. I know that's our, our next question, but I can't move my uh, either <laughs> my arms or my legs. So um, for me, it would be autonomy and just independence. I um, have really a very few amount of things that I can do completely on my own and. So, I mean, honestly, just being able to go drive a car by myself or um, 
I don't know, not needing help with everything, kind of not have to plan my day around others. Um, that is definitely a, the hardest part of my life. So ballad ladder are part of that, but um, in the whole, it just it, for me that seems like a lot more. So I would just want some um, uh, additional autonomy yeah. and independence. Well, no, that's a perfect setup for, I think, another one. And since the three of us are all quadriplegic, um, you know, I think there's this one of the real common misperceptions is that as a quadriplegic, you are not able to move at all. Um, and we each have different kind of levels, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about what it actually means to be quadriplegic. So, Brooke, you want to start off since you're a higher one of sure. all of us? Yeah, I'm happy to. Something just uh, kind of said. Um, I I'm always feeling um it's somewhat easier for me. People don't question me. Um, something that some people may not be aware of is that I have plenty of quadriplegic friends, and the fact that they can move um, a bit of their arms, or um, you know, some people can actually stand or or do various things. But it doesn't mean that parts of their um, their limbs haven't been paralyzed, and that that still classifies them as a quadriplegic as long as they have a cervical injury. For me, I'm very straightforward. Um, I cannot lift my hands, um, so I will not throw a ball at me. I will not catch it. Um, I'm. Uh, for me, that means about a couple of inches above my elbows. If you cut a line across, um, I can feel above there, and that's where I can move. So I have some pretty sweet dance moves with my shoulder and my head. Um, I have not everyone, um, higher injuries are not able to move their head as much, but I am um, able to move that around as much as I want. I can shrug my shoulders really well. Um, but aside from that, yeah, um, being a quadriplegic and I'm a complete injury-ish, um, which just means I don't have feeling or uh, any kind of sensation other than some um, deep touch and I'm unable to move anything really below, like I said, my elbows um, or my upper torso. So, yeah, I'm a C5 quad complete, uh, quadriplegic complete or tetraplegic, whichever term you want to use. Um, I have uh, control of my arms, the uh, biceps. So I can bend my arms, but I can't straighten them, so I don't have no triceps. I use gravity to straighten my arms, and I don't have any movement in my fingers or um, any grasp. I have slight movement in my wrist, but no sensation. So that gives me the ability to grab things either using one hand, you know, uh, using like a pinch grip, you know, flicking your wrist back, or using both hands to grab onto a bottle, a cup, or whatever I have it. And um, because I have that ability, uh, I can also drive using very specialized equipment. So it, it just, you know, what it says, being a quadriplegic doesn't mean that you can't move. Uh, although there are many who can't, you know, you have the C1 through C4, depending on where your lesion is, um, that can't, but you got C5 through C8 that uh, progressively uh, can move their um, arms and fingers more and more, depending on the level. Yeah, and just to be clear for people who don't know, when we talk about C1 through C8, we're talking about your cervical vertebrae, uh, which you have eight of, and technically that's what defines you as a quadriplegic uh, in medical terms, if your injury is in one of those eight uh, vertebrae. And depending on where you are, like Jose was saying, 
that will result in different functional um, and sensational levels of uh, feeling and ability. So it's not clear cut in any sense of the way, but generally if you're a quadriplegic, you have some impairment on one or both of your upper limbs in addition to uh, paralysis on your legs. So that's just one of the things a lot of people I don't think know, don't know. I know I didn't know that when I was injured, I can remember uh, laying in the ICU and being completely perplexed by one of the nurses telling me that I was a quadriplegic. And as I pointed out to her, I could totally move my shoulders and my arms. And she was like, nope, you're a quad. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So one of those things you just learn over time, I guess. Uh, I guess the definition of, I guess the definition of um, quadriplegic means um, it affects all four limbs. So even if it affects right, you have to have it, some impairment, yeah. Yeah, even if it it affects it slightly, um, then uh, you're classified as a quad because uh, there's some other disabilities like uh, polio that can be considered quadriplegics because they have weakness in their arms. Although they can control it completely, um, it is affected. Yep. Yep. Cool. So um, moving on, uh, Brooke, you touched on this one also, uh, I think in your answer before um, about, you know, what you would wish for, but, uh, and I'm, I'm going to use the term independence loosely here, but I think there's a misperception that people with spinal cord injuries or uh, disorders can live, you know, out in the community on their own. I think a lot of people don't realize that many of us are, you know, living in apartments or houses and, kind of running our day-to-day -day business. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that and how you guys live your life and uh, how you define independence a little bit. Sure, um, I know that I, um, I, I always tell people that I feel like my largest accomplishment to date is one that I did um, a year and a half after my injury. Um, I moved out um, from my living with family. Um, I know in the hospital, being a C4 injury, and I was relatively young when I was um, had my accident, that uh, there was really little, little real support or um, uh, confidence that I would ever be able to live independently. My mom was said, you know, she clearly just said, it's me and you girls till we're 80. And um, as a young person who had recently just moved out of the house uh, on my own at all, I that was scary to me. Um, I had moved away from my hometown, which was smaller, and I was ready, and I was taking on the world, and I didn't see how my injury was going to stop that. And so um, I went back to school to finish my undergrad um, a year and a half later. Um, for me, that means I, I still need 24-hour uh, assistance and care, but um, I was able to do that, and I managed my household um, after um, like I said before, it's been 16 years. I've lived in five different cities, um, was able to, I mean, I've had many jobs and all over and uh, finished grad school and I've done all kinds of things and, um, you know, while managing other people. So my independence is through others, but um, the real truth is for a lot of people, um, we aren't even told or even um, given a chance that we would be able to live out in the world on our own, and we definitely can. It's hard. There are lots of hurdles that you have to jump through, but um, 
totally doable. And um, yeah, I'm here to definitely squash that. And that we just have to be kind of creative and other people have to, to trust that we can do that because that's a, a big piece of that puzzle is making, you know, other people believing it and knowing that, you know, this train can work with help. Well, I, I have to, you know, follow up with that and say, yeah, absolutely. It's completely possible to live independent as a high level quad. I have been living on my own for almost 16 years and um, manage my household. I don't live with anyone. Uh, I do have my aides. I have a rotating shift of aides. Uh, I have a day shift and a night shift that, you know, give me the ability to be uh, independent, uh, help me up uh, and help me with a few of my ADLs. But once I'm in my chair, I'm pretty uh, independent. Um, there's another thing that a misconception of it within the disabled community, because um, if you become independent and you start wor working, then, you know, uh, you're going to lose your Medicaid and you're going to become uh, dependent again. So you're going to lose the ability to be independent because you start working. And that's not completely true. Uh, there's ways to keep your medical insurance and your 24 hour aid if you need it or uh, with your Medicaid. At, while working and it, it's different in different states but in new york um i've been able to work successfully and make enough money to earn a living and live pretty comfortable and i still have my 24-hour care yeah definitely varies from state to state but i think that's a really good thing to point out also i think there is a, that misperception you talk about that you know people you know with disabilities like ours uh, that might seem extreme from the outside are just sort of mooching off the system and, you know, taking government benefits or whatever and not giving anything back. And uh, I think we can all attest to that not being true at all. Um, but I can say that the government does not make it easy. Yep. Like I pay yeah. more in taxes than I would have received in SSI benefits or SS, well, not SSDI because I was injured as a kid, but in SSI benefits and I, all I need is my Medicaid. If you can keep me independent and, you know, my home care, uh, then you have another member of the society that's going to be in the working force paying into the system instead of just completely draining it, uh, as some people would say. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Jose. Um, uh, and something that I do think is a misconception, both in the, the larger public and um, with people who have, have disabilities and in similar injuries. Um, I too, I actually pay in here in my state in Oregon, um, I have to pay in to have coverage um, because I work, which is a whole new thing that I don't think most people um, realize. You know, it's not that, that so many of us don't wanna work, we very much wanna work, but yeah, it's pretty convoluted. And the fact that, um, you know, we pay over and above for the the privilege to work, even though we have, you know, we have these infinite wisdoms and insights that I think make us really amazing employees that, uh, you know, people aren't able to see that because there's some blocks in place that actually, yeah, make it harder for people with uh, more severe injuries to work. And we have to, in the end, it's not necessarily profitable. I think all of us would agree it's definitely uh, important for our lives and overall it works. But um, yeah, it's difficult. No, and uh, to follow up on that is that, you know, 
the general public does not appreciate how much we have to go through to be able to work. We have to leave earlier. We have to get up earlier, leave earlier. We have to purchase different items just to be able to do our jobs um, that able bodies that don't have to. Um, let's just say, like, I'm just going to use New York as an example. Um, if I was to, if I have to go to the office, I would have to make my way through this labyrinth of a subway system to get to Queens, which is a relatively short ride for an able body in 45 minutes. It can take me upwards of an hour and a half, two hours just to get there because I have to find accessible stations. And uh, luckily I work for an employer that's understand that understands if I'm 30 minutes or an hour late due to, you know, whether it be the paratransit system or the subway system, but um, other employers aren't going to be so understanding. So it's a tricky system to navigate, but it's definitely worth it. And you have to, you know, get out there. And anyone listening is uh, interested in going back to work. We do have an, an employment initiative or a, employment uh, mentorship program that uh, I'm a part of. And uh, if you need information on that, contact us. Definitely. And at the end, we'll have time to mention that stuff too, and we'll bring it up again. Uh, but I think you, you gave me a, another perfect segue into uh, one of the other really big misperceptions out there, uh, talking about the subway and the lack of access. Uh, and that misperception is that a lot of people, I genuinely believe, I think that, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act pretty much ended uh, access to access problems for people with disabilities that, you know, it fixed most of the problems, not everything, but made it just really like it'd be easy for us to get around. What would you guys say to that? <laughs> it, it, it's made it easier, but it's not a perfect system. Um, in New York, we were able to make the bus is 100% accessible, but they only agreed to have 100 key stations made accessible. And as an alternative to not making the subway stations completely accessible, they provide a paratransit system that um, they waste or spend $650 million per year. And the system is completely broken. I can order an accessor ride, but you have to do it one day in advance and they're late a lot of the time and returning home can take you three, four hours. So it's, it's a tr tricky system uh, and the ADA doesn't address that. Uh, one more thing, there's loopholes to the ADA. Uber across the US, no matter what state you're in, um, claims itself to be a transportation network application. And as an application, they're not required to provide any ADA um, vehicles or any ADA rides. So they have become the main transportation or taxi service in many major cities, yet they have maybe one, 2% of their vehicles uh, have uh, wheelchair access. So they definitely ignore the ADA at every chance they get. Those are both really good examples. Maybe Brooke, you could talk a little bit about just on a more general level of, you know, just building accessibility and what we kind of face and deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, just getting around and trying to go places. 
Yeah, I definitely can. Um, yeah, those are great points that Jose brought up because those uh, those big transportation issues are huge. And for anyone who relies on those, that is the kind of thing that, that keeps someone at home because they can't leave. But um, uh, I am very lucky transportation-wise that I, um, I am able to have an accessible van, which um, in the city I live, since it's more of a drivable city, um, that really helps me. But um, while my van can drive around and I can hope no one is parked in the hash, uh, the hash marks next to uh, my van when I park, um, I still, we face a lot of barriers just in the environment. The ADA, ADA didn't fix everything. I know it did a lot. Um, I can't imagine what things looked like before the ADA. So I am so forever grateful for the people who fought um, for all of the changes that have been implemented. Um, I generally don't have to worry that a restaurant or a um, theater or um, even nature um, isn't going to be accessible at all. But it does happen. It's happened a couple of times in the last couple of weeks where um, I've had to go in, you know, an, an odd side door around back or we're rolling through the kitchen, um, which, you know, it's, it's hard. I know that Ian and I have discussed this, but we can love a restaurant. And if I had to come through some weird entrance, you know, it's just kind of, um, I, you don't feel valued as a customer and uh, people with disabilities, like we're saying, uh, have jobs and have full lives and I want to be welcomed as a patron just as anyone else. And um, there's a lot of people who still, at this point, there's a lot of workarounds or, um, you know, things that not don't always even seem safe. And um, they're just, uh, oftentimes, I think, uh, with physical spaces, it seems a bit like an afterthought. Um, so that's it's hard. It, it takes up our time and energy. And um, for me, I feel like I do okay because I I always pretty much all I do always have someone with me that can some kind sometimes get me in some of those tight spots. But um, for people in power chairs or someone on their own, I, I I've been many places where uh, my friends are are not able to access those spaces. And you know. Um, business owners or if you uh, end up talking to the city or someone, there's just a lot of people, you know, shrugging their own shoulders and saying, you know, sorry, that's life, you know, and thinking that we should be pretty happy with what we have, but we have a lot, a lot longer to go. And some of the attitudes are, um, are some of the things that, you know, that's what we need the most is support. So. Well, yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, it, it, if the ADA would have fixed everything, we wouldn't have to call restaurants and ask them if they're accessible. Uh, and sometimes they even screw that up because you call them and they say, yeah, we're accessible. And like Brooke was saying, what they consider accessible is the back entrance near the trash. And um, that's not acceptable. Um, and also another example is, yes, you might have access. You can get into the building and go to the restaurant or whatever venue it is, but the bathroom is completely inaccessible to you. So that is kind of eliminates that option as well. Because if you're at a restaurant and you have to use a bathroom, then what are you supposed to do? Find another restaurant that is accessible? So the ADA has made it better, but not oh, perfect. Yeah, right. I mean, I think and it's I, worth I, pointing I, out. Go oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I'll talk to you. <laughs> I just wanted to mention, uh, just as Jose said, he uh, about calling ahead. There's so much legwork that goes into uh, having a spinal cord injury 
the fact that we are always calling ahead or getting places early, or if I'm going to see a show, I'm always there at the doors because I don't trust that, um, you know, if I'm not, I can just roll in and I'll be able to see at all and, uh, or that anyone's going to, you know, take the time to actually make sure I'm enjoying the show that I paid for. So generally that's a call ahead, get there really early, make sure I clean my space. Um, often, you know, having to talk to someone else or have people, you know, really help me out to make sure I'm having a view that's even kind of uh, the same as other people. And, you know, that's frustrating. So, and that's every aspect of our life all day, uh, traveling, anything like that just takes so much more time and energy and checking and really trying to trust and hope that people are going to meet us on the other side. But, you know, often that doesn't happen. And, you know, that's a hard life reality. Yep. I was going to say, for people who are listening, who maybe aren't in wheelchairs, you know, if you ever get a chance to spend, you know, just a few hours out on the, uh, out and around town with a friend of yours or someone who is in a wheelchair um, and see, you know, you'll, you'll look at the world through a different lens because some of the little things that you don't, uh, you wouldn't notice or would just sort of ignore can be the biggest obstacles. You know, a minor two inch curb might be the difference between me or Jose being able to get into, you know, a place we want to go, you know, uh, a, a ramp that's, that looks like something that would maybe add access that's too steep uh, is completely useless uh, if you're in, you know, a big power chair or something. So it's just a real eye opening thing. And I, I don't blame anyone for, not uh, not revolutionizing everything almost 30 years after the ADA, but it definitely can be frustrating uh, looking around and seeing the, how far we still have to go at this point when we passed this legislation, like I said, almost 30 years ago. So uh, definitely a good eye opener. Um, with that one, any more that you guys want, any other misperceptions you guys want to toss out? that I haven't brought up or things that you want to talk about? Uh, well, I was looking at our list and um, I just wanted to say, we've definitely touched on uh, a few other big aspects like working and being out in physical and, you know, physical spaces and the ADA, but you did also have um, the common mis misconception that people think that we live solitary lives and that we are uh, perfectly capable yep. of, relationships and I think that one's really huge uh, I would say with everything it's pretty hard it's a, it's a big balance but that is not um, something that anyone should should discount anyone for um, I know I've had people who know me pretty well or uh, you know can sit there and I can tell them all these things I've accomplished in my life and then four minutes later can be like so can you date and which you know that's a kind of a question that uh, I don't know takes me aback it feels insane because of course we can date of course uh, we have capacity for love and people very much have capacity to love us in return um you know uh people with disabilities can have sex whatever that means whether that is absolutely uh equivalent to the um the kind of intercourse uh someone else would be having that's that varies just as it does with able-bodied populations but plenty of us can have um your your normal textbook uh, sexual encounters, but beyond that, there's all kinds of intimacy and relationships that people experience as, uh, you know, part of our whole full life spectrum, and so I wouldn't want anyone to think um, we, we weren't there either, so. Yeah, I was wondering if we were going to talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, it, it, it's something that comes up, uh, especially when it, it's the beginning of a relationship or you're trying to get to know someone, you know, uh, there's definitely a misconception. I was like, uh, I, do, I want to ask you a question, but I don't want to offend you. Um, I'm like, yeah, just ask it. You want to get it out of the way? Let's just do it. Um, yes, I can have sex. Um, and, and that's just a short answer. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but yeah, definitely. If I can live independently, I can work, drive. I think sex is like the easiest part of it. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> but you know, for some reason, it seems to be the most important part of you know, especially when you're you know starting uh, a relationship with someone. It always comes up first. It's like no, no, uh, not how you drive, not how you work, not how you work, uh, live independently. But can you have sex? Yeah, I. And, and honestly, not. Go ahead, Ian. Oh no, I, I was gonna say, and, and not just when you're in a relationship. That's one of the one of the most common questions I think from random strangers. Uh, you know, if you're out at a bar or out somewhere in public, I can't can't count the number of times I've heard that one thrown out there for people that I barely know. Um, so maybe it's just, you know, it, it's part of the public fascination and it's a good one to address. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Brooke. Of course. Yeah. And I was just going to say exactly what you were, you were saying, um, I'm, especially if we have listeners that are, uh, are people who are uh, outside of, you know, a real big familiarity. Um, yeah. People love to ask us pretty blatantly if we can have sex, which I think is just, you know, life all of life-wise, that that is a funny thing to abruptly ask people. I mean, it's definitely, uh, for, I've heard stories a lot, you know, people just come directly up to them and like, hello, that's all I care about from you. And, um, you know, that's weird. But at the same time, I guess people are curious. I would say, hey, maybe don't have that be your opening line with someone. Maybe ask them their name first and, uh, you know, something else about them because, that's just inappropriate for a few reasons. Um, I, I'm obviously, and I think most of us are pretty open about that. So if, if it was in a, a safe spot in somebody's getting to know process, then then potentially it's something that could be talked about. But um, but that, and then I also would want to say um, people can be pretty abrupt with the how did you get hurt or um, what happened to you questions, uh, which same thing, like maybe ask someone's their name and ask them a few other things. And then, of course, if they're comfortable and you feel like you have earned that uh, that spot, then you can ask them that people have um, all kinds of scenarios that, that get uh, resulted in spinal cord injury or uh, if it's a um, part of a uh, medical issue, you know, there's not an exciting story and, and not everybody wants to share that with any given person. So I would be um, a little bit more thoughtful in those kind of questions right so maybe when you're when you meet a new person in a wheelchair don't just go up to them and say so what happened to you and can you have sex mm -hmm. not the best way to go i'm just going to make a shirt that says yes i can i'm just going to point to the middle of my shirt <laughs> i think that would be a big hit like yes i um, can <laughs> Uh, any other any other things you guys want to talk about uh, before we wrap it up? Uh, like no, that's... if you're gonna wrap it up, I want to uh, uh, give me the opportunity. I want to add. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was gonna say before we wrap it up, I wanted to give you a chance to you know give a shout out to anything or direct people to any 
any other places you think would be relevant to continuing this discussion and helping, you know, as far as getting rid of some of these misperceptions or just anything in general? Well, if you have a disability and you're, you know, looking for an uh, employment, uh, like I stated before, we have the uh, employment uh, mentorship program that uh, is open to anyone with a disability. You just contact us and we'll try to guide you through the process. Um, if you're also a person with a disability and you're looking for uh, sex advice or sex uh, education, there's a great website called sexualitysei.org. Um, it was sponsored by um, the New York chapter and other uh, places paid for by a grant, has great videos, great information on there. Um, so yeah, you can check those out. Um, and I don't know if Brooke wants to plug anything. Uh, I would be happy to. Um, I guess just as a really broad um, plug, I'd say whether you have a disability or an SCI or, or you do not at all, and if you don't know anybody um, in a chair or you do, I would just say, start talking to people who have SCIs, whether, you know, like I said, whether you have one, you should be talking to others. And if you don't, then also you should be getting to know um, people with this kind of injuries and disabilities and seeing how they live their lives. Um, I think there's so much insight. And I think uh, I getting to know others has been super impactful for me. Um, and, and we have a lot to teach a lot of people. So um, I think we want people to to get to know us better. And um, beyond that, I am happy to plug my grassroots advocacy network, which is um, trying to unite our members from across the country and um, being empowered in their local and state level to fight for some of the things that we were, uh, we've been talking about today and just create, creating awareness. So even if it is just about sex and relationships, we want people to know that and we wanna make sure there's things like protections for people um, when they get married or making sure that um, we are getting adequate um, healthcare services for our reproductive rights and needs. And then of course, physical spaces and uh, making sure we are able to pay for things like caregivers and live out in the community because sadly, some of that stuff uh, comes up for, uh, for votes more often than people would ever think. And um, currently uh, living in the community is really something that it's, it's not guaranteed for everyone. So then um, living in the community versus living in some kind of institution, that, that means most of the things we're talking about um, are not relevant. You aren't able to have jobs and you're able to have real relationships and be out in the world and worry about whether or not um, restaurants and things have stairs. So uh, I think really getting involved is important. So uh, feel free to contact me about that. Yeah, definitely. And, uh Check, you can find Brooke at uh, unitedspinal.org. Uh, That's just how it sounds. So www.unitedspinal.org. And you can also find Jose there on the Resource Center. If you have questions um, you know, or have follow-ups to this, you want to find more out, there's a really easy way to get them directed to us through the website. So definitely check that out. And yeah, I think that's going to be a wrap for today. Thank you, Brooke, and thank you, Jose, for your time and all your insight. Uh, this was hopefully really helpful for uh, for me. It was helpful for me. Hopefully, it was helpful for other people. And I hope you guys enjoyed it too. All right. Thank you, Ian. Yep. See you guys. Bye. Bye.